think there's that wonderful thing that once kids have worked together and sung together, because singing together brings people together in, in, a, in an extraordinary way, um, then, you know, nothing will ever pull them apart. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Lynn Williams is Artistic Director and founder of Gondwana Voices, the umbrella group for more than a dozen choirs across Australia. If you've heard that beautiful Qantas ad a few years ago, you know Lynn's work. She trained as a professional harpist at the Sydney Conservatorium before switching to composing, conducting and arranging for choirs, predominantly children's choirs. She's received numerous awards, including a medal in the Order of Australia, a New South Wales Award for the 2006 Classical Music Awards and the 2009 APRA Australia Music Centre Work of the Year for A Flock of Stars. She's uniquely able to offer insights into the role of singing in a good life. And it's a pleasure to welcome her to the Good Life podcast today. G'day, Lynn. Hello, Andrew. Can I just, I'll just say quickly that the company's name is Gondwana Choirs now, and Gondwana Voices is just one of our many choirs. Excellent. All right. Tell me about your uh, childhood and about your, uh, your introduction to music. You didn't grow up in Australia, did you? No, indeed. I began my life in France, which is where I was born, um, out in the Loire Valley in an, in an old farmhouse. And what were your parents doing in France? I mean, military, diplomats? No, well, my father decided to go to France to, to work over there. My, both my parents decided they'd like that sort of an adventure, to go to a country where they didn't speak the language and didn't necessarily understand the food or anything. And... Um, he actually ended up starting a veterinary pharmaceuticals company over there and spent 10 years there. Sounds very sort of year in Provence kind of experience. It was, way before it became fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> and was music a big part of your childhood? It, I'd never remember a time without music. I can't remember exactly where it started, but I know, you know, my parents, well, at least my mother used to sing to us all the time. And we would sing songs together all the time. So um, even though they weren't musicians as such, it was definitely a part of our lives from the very beginning. What sort of music would your parents play uh, when they were playing recordings? Oh, let me see. Well, it was the era of the Beatles and all of those things. And they'd have, um, they'd buy, you know, records and listen to those. And um, I can't remember exactly what we used to listen to, but whatever it was, we'd be very enthusiastic about it. And then there are, of course, very many folk songs. And I also remember in France, everybody at the time had a vast repertoire of folk songs that everybody knew. And I think um, probably in Australia less so. We all, mm. know, we all know Walsing Matilda and we all know a couple of other songs. 
and you know maybe a bit of various other things, but there's not that sort of canon of yes. works that everybody grows up knowing. But I've having returned to France and even with the choir on many occasions, in fact, it's interesting that the children don't know those songs anymore. So how did how did it shape you? being a child growing up in, in an unusual environment. I mean, I, I have my own views on this. My parents uh, uh, moved to Indonesia for three years of my childhood and a, a year in Malaysia. How did you find being in that unfamiliar environment, being, being a bit of an outsider, shaped your view of the world? Well, it was familiar to me because I was born there. I think I was amazingly lucky to grow up bilingual because uh, bilingualism means so many things. It's more than just words. Um, being speaking another language is another way of perceiving the world and I think to grow up perceiving the world in two different ways in sort of encapsulated in two languages means that already before launching out into your life you have two ways of looking at the world which means that you develop a greater understanding for mm. how all the ways that people can look at the world which is makes it the rich place that it is yes so the voice is obviously the first uh, first instrument, and then uh, what comes next after that? I think we moved to Australia, and I uh, started playing the piano. And my mother was very savvy in this regard because she wouldn't let us learn an instrument till we begged for at least a year. <laughs> um, it's kind of the opposite to the way in which uh, most parents do musical education. Exactly, but it worked because uh, you know I started the piano, and my my younger brother started the cello and I don't think she ever told us to practice the whole time really? because we had so wanted to do it for such a long time that once we... And then she said, you know, maybe if there was a moment when we didn't want to practice, she'd say, oh, that's fine, you don't need to practice, but then you won't need to go to lessons, will you? So very quickly we'd turn around and <laughs> start practicing again. So she, she was very cluey in that regard and I must say that as a parent I didn't have that same touch at all. So, so practising a musical instrument in your household was a little bit like having a chop-top ice, ice cream is in most other people's households. Oh, may, maybe, yes, probably, in most times. And I know when we went away on holidays, I used to just long for the piano. I just would, I just used to think, oh my goodness, can't I just get home and get back to my piano? I know it sounds pathetic, <laughs> you know, here I was at the beach or something, but there you go, that's how I felt. So how did your own parents... You know, You've mentioned one way in which your parents uh, shaped musical parenting for you. Were there other things that they did that um, parents like me could learn from in terms of uh, inculcating a sense of the beauty of music in our children? I think they were very um, appreciative of all that is creative and artistry, and that went through everything. So I know my father used to paint and he used to be very keen on photography and um, I think they always realised that that was one of the very precious things in life and I think that communicated to us and so all three of us have gone into, have creative lives and, you know, they really think that we're very lucky for that. Well, tell me a little more about the creative lives of your siblings now. Well, my brother, my younger brother Michael is a cellist he lives uh, in Vienna and has a very rich life as a cellist. And he has, when we talk about language, he has two young children who are growing up speaking three languages, which would be German, English, and uh, their mother speaks Russian. 
Um, and then my older brother is an architect and he's currently living in France uh, as the design architect supervising um, on the new interpretive centre at Villas Bretonneux, the, at the Australian War Memorial there. So, uh, yeah, mm. we're lucky. Mm, absolutely. Mm. So you then moved from uh, the piano into, into the harp then? Is that that, or is there an instrument in between? No, we moved to Sydney and I went to the Conservatorium High School and took up the harp. And uh, yes, my, my life was, you know, sort of strumming chords and playing lots of pizzicato for a long time after that. What, what drew you to the harp? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, I loved the sound of it. And in fact, years later, I went to play at a school and I, you know how you do things in schools and then you get letters back from the children. And a seven-year-old wrote, drew a picture and sent me something that said, I never knew that the sound of someone dreaming came from a harp, which I thought was just beautiful. And it I is. thought that's what it is about the harp, isn't it? And uh, did you at that stage see yourself as being a professional musician? I think I always dreamt of being a professional musician. To me, it was the absolute pinnacle of the things that one could do. Um, and, you know, just going through primary school and I was always composing and, you know, going to the teachers at school and saying, I've written a musical. It's about, it's about Julius Caesar and his mother and his cat. And is it okay if we put it on? And okay, and bossing and people age? around. Oh, you know, eleven, that sort of You've thing. You wrote musicals at age eleven, then. Yes, but I think more to the point, I was bossy enough to make people let me do it. So even at that stage, you weren't just thinking of yourself as one of the performers, but as someone who would orchestrate the whole experience. Ah, uh, definitely. And I always thought, uh, yes, it was one of those things, and. I, I recognise it now in young girls and they're often the girls that, you know, are displaying these sort of leadership qualities and they often do get criticised for it and you can see them being put down and actually, no, they're just, they're just practising the things that will be really useful to them later in life and all of those things take practice and, and I think leadership takes a great deal of practice. Mm. And your teachers were, were encouraging of that, uh, that, those leadership skills that you were showing at that stage? I think they were very understanding. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to be able to go back and sort of look upon it from a distance now, and I just remember it from my perspective as a child. But I think, um, yes, I mean, I was very lucky. I think I've been lucky throughout my lives with the people that I've been surrounded by mm. um, because they really, people facilitate things for you through your life and you just you know have to think back and be very grateful for all of that. Absolutely. Mm. And what drew you then to children's choirs? I think as I was going through school I was doing a lot of orchestral playing which I absolutely loved and I played in the Australian Youth Orchestra and then went on to play in the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and all that was wonderful and just so much fantastic repertoire. But I'd heard this instrument which was called the Tapiola Choir of Finland, conducted by somebody who went on to be, you know, a mentor, I guess, in one way, Erku Pohjola. And um, it was the most beautiful instrument, and it was an incredibly highly trained children's choir. 
and I was very, very drawn to that sound. And the, the concept of children doing things at an utterly professional level. Does the Tapiola Children's Choir still perform? The they still exist, yeah. and they have had several conductors since then, and um, you know they're still performing at a high level. And over the years, we've had various collaborations with them and mm. um, sort of swapped conductors. I've at, at one stage went over to do a tour with them conducting and took some singers over, and they brought their conductor. And it's been a few years now, but for you know we have had some really lovely collaborations. And I remember you said to me in an earlier conversation we had that you didn't just regard a youth choir as being an immature version of an adult choir, but as being something else entirely. Can you tell me a little more about that? Well, it's quite a different instrument. Um, in a different way to sort of a younger... A children's orchestra is a lesser version in some ways, although I probably hate myself for saying that, of an adult orchestra. It has its own charms. Um, a children's choir is quite a different instrument. It's a different sound, just as a violin is to a cello, or, and it has its own very special qualities. And I think, to me, the children's choir instrument has a great purity, a great power to communicate, with integrity and honesty, and uh, I was always very drawn to that sound. It also gives children the opportunity to perform at a professional level. So how many young people, you know, age 12, can say, well, I've sung with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and I've sung with Opera Australia, and maybe the Australian Chamber Orchestra, and I've sung in the proms in London, um, you know, which are all things that we've done and they're just kids and they've had those experiences and they've grown enormously by the, the high expectations that are placed on them. Um, so it's a wonderful thing from that perspective as well. We do often draw on children's choirs for important openings, don't we? It's not as though we sort of bring in the children's string orchestra in order to, to open an important building, but we'll often have a group of children singing to, to welcome a foreign dignitary or to acknowledge the, mm -hmm. uh, the opening of a new building. There's a sense in which that, that's associated, you know, it's a bit the, the equivalent of, uh, of letting the doves loose at the, uh, at the, uh, to mark the start of the Olympics. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a sense in which we use it to symbolically mark important moments, isn't it? Well, I think uh, it's a voice of hope. And we did the opening, we were singing at the opening of the 2000 Olympics and we also did the opening of the, um, the Commonwealth Games in 2006. And so, you know, that's another wacky thing about being involved with children's choirs singing from the top of the Harbour Bridge or we did the, the performance at, in the year 2000 at dawn from the Opera House, you know, the hope of the new millennium, I think. There is something that children's choirs can say in, in those situations. So tell me about your, uh, your choral empire as it uh, currently stretches. What, are, what, 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 what different choirs do you have and how do you, how do you keep them all running? Well, the first was uh, Sydney Children's Choir, which I founded in 1989. So it's also you know, the oldest now. Um, and now we have over 500 children, aged from five all the way through to the end of school. Then we started our national choirs, and the first of those, because I wanted to 
give children from all over Australia the same opportunity because I'd done the Australian Youth Orchestra and the World Youth Orchestra and I remembered those as real high points. So I thought it would be great to do the same thing with young people. Um, but now there are, next January we'll have six national choirs at our National Choral School. And then the most recent of all is the Gondwana Indigenous Children's Choir, which started off as a project-based um, guess program. And now we have hubs in Cairns. We have a, a group in Cairns and two in Sydney, one in central Sydney and one in the Campbelltown region. And the concept behind those is that we offer them exactly the same program as the Sydney Children's Choir, and the basis being, you know, if we set those high expectations and the children see that we've got those expectations of them, guess what? They will meet those expectations. And that has proven to be exactly the case. And so we have in Cairns and Sydney, for instance, two very different choirs, but they are equally good in their own ways. What has uh, running those choirs taught you about your, uh, your other choirs? You mean the Indigenous the choirs? The Indigenous choirs, yes. Hmm. I think um, it's taught me that every child has a complex life story, that every child you come across, you don't know what they've been through that day, you don't know what happens every day in their lives, um, but they come into rehearsal and, you know, that might show for the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, and then just music draws everybody together and you can take them, you know, to different places and view the world differently and, uh, you know, extend them and it's extraordinary the results that you get. And I think, I, I, you know, I first saw that starkly in the Indigenous choir but then came to realise that actually that's, that's every boy and girl that comes into our choirs. Do your choirs uh, often uh, perform with one another? As much as we can. We love bringing them together. They love working together. They're, you know, once they have toured together or performed together, they're, you know, they're in contact with each other all the time. And, you know, I'll be in a Sydney Children's Choir rehearsal, we'll go out for a break, and they'll be busy sort of FaceTiming one of the Indigenous Choir children or something, and they'll all get together and, and you know... They, I think there's that wonderful thing that once kids have worked together and sung together, because singing together brings people together and in, a, in an extraordinary way, um, then, you know, nothing will ever pull them apart. Yes. Mm. And what makes a, a good choir? Mm. Well, to be a really good choir, you need to be able to listen extraordinarily well. So I often talk to the children about not just hearing things, but actually listening. And then once you listen, listen on a deeper level. And you just keep going to deeper levels of listening. And the more you can do that, and the more you can understand each other, the better the choir will become. And that, the great thing about that is it spills over into all sorts of other things that are not just about singing. Tell me a bit more about that. What sort of spills over into what sorts of things? Well, it spills over into... When it reaches that level, it spills over into understanding. It's um, into 
generosity and openness and um, openness to difference and uh, different points of view and um, might be an idealistic way of looking at it, but I think it really impacts for a long time on these young people's lives. And I see it in, you know, I get these emails from 25-year-olds or they'll find me on Facebook or something and they'll say, I was in the choir and now I'm a lawyer and I'm doing pro bono work for this group and that group or I'm working overseas for not-for-profit organisations or... And it happens so often that I think there's something about being in the choir that really has a strong influence on them in developing that level of understanding and openness to the world. Yes, I, I suppose it's one of those instances in which the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts in which each participant's reminded that what they do is only possible because of all the people around them. It really is. And that goes against the fact that actually they develop this incredible sense of responsibility. So even though it is this group working together, and that could be that actually you lose, you take less responsibility, they come to realise that the more personal responsibility they take for the whole, the better it works. And what a strong influence their part plays on the whole. Mm. And that is one thing that in Gondwana choirs becomes very important. So, for instance, just on a purely technical level, you know, choirs sort of work in different parts. So in a, in a good treble choir, you'll have at least four parts, you know, soprano one, two, alto one and two. And very often in choirs, everybody's in there together learning the parts and you, you teach everybody the parts and then, it, you know, gradually you pull it together. And I used to do it that way. But now we say, all right, here's the music, go away and learn it come back and we'll pull it together. So they go off in their parts. Mm. We don't send, there's no adults. They just do it themselves and they work out between them how they're going to teach it to everybody, make sure everybody knows it. And there's this incredible sense of responsibility to the point where they, we're coming towards the end of the year and choirs always renew themselves from year to year. And I walked in and they put in their own succession plan into action. So the older ones had the slightly younger ones up teaching everybody and giving them advice. And that was all self-driven from within the group. And I think... That is incredible. Yeah, it really is. And to see them work, I think anybody would be impressed. It must be extraordinary too, as you're watching a choir perform, to think of all of these young people breathing in absolute unison. That's right. And it, it, I think the choir is where that happens. They, they breathe together. They have to. So they breathe together. They, they travel this moment in time together. And it has been shown their heartbeats even come into sync. People have... You know, and that's a special thing, I think, about choirs. Are there children who you've seen particularly benefit from being in choirs? I think most of the children who come through benefit in various different ways. But there's a great um, confidence-building thing. And I think it's doing anything in life. I don't think this is particular to choirs. I think where they're in a situation where there's clearly a great deal of respect for them and their abilities, and in our case, their artistry, and they know that and feel that, and their confidence grows, but it could equally be sport or it could equally be, you know, maths or all of those things where people believe in them 
And I think it's that belief and respect mm. which which benefits them. And of course, you know, they benefit from the pure artistic level, musical level, or the way they they develop, you know, intellectually. Mm. But there's a lot beyond that. I've heard it said that choirs are particularly uh, affirming for kids on the autism spectrum. Uh, is, have you had any engagement on, on this? And, and if so, why do you think it might be true? We do, and that describes many of the children in the choir. And it's, it's wonderful to see, and I have seen some young people come through the choir and really become fabulous young adults who go out and... Um, perform wonderfully in the world in all sorts of different ways. And I think, you know, we think about it very carefully, that I think a lot of children on the spectrum, they love the order of it. They love the sense of expectation. Mm -hmm. They love that they know we're going to rehearse the music and we're going to achieve this particular thing. And in the earlier years, you know, we might put up things on the board of these are the things we're going to do today so we can tick them off and... um, you know, we've gone into it carefully as to how to, to cater for such fabulous young minds. So uh, what about music as a way of uh, bridging uh, cultural barriers? I mean, you think of the sort of big experiments such as the uh, Edward Said, Daniel Barenboim exercise with bringing together an Israeli-Palestinian orchestra. Mm. Uh, have you been involved in, uh, in exercises of, of this nature using music uh, with working with young people in order to bridge large cultural differences? We have, um, and I, it's definitely a field that I'm extremely interested in. Uh, several years ago, two or three years ago, we did a project called The Mirror Project. I don't know if you know Jeannie Baker's book, Mirror. No, I don't. It's the one children's illustrated book that I think it's the only book that I've ever opened it and immediately it brought tears to my eyes. It's this wonderful book where there are two books, in fact, within one. One tells the story in pictures of a young boy growing up in Sydney, in Balmain, and the other's a boy growing up in Morocco, and and how these two stories of these two little lives mirror each other. It's really beautiful. And we worked out in the Lakemba area in Sydney in several schools developing choirs, out there, and we commissioned a work based on this Jeannie Baker book, which mm-hmm. we brought together and performed with, um, you know, projections and visual elements from the book. And it involved Sydney Children's Choir and the children out there, and I think everyone benefited equally. It was very special. Wow. Uh, and just... Um I don't know whether this is a personal question or whether it might apply to other listeners, but uh, but our middle child, Theodore, who's uh, seven, is just a, a beautiful singer, has the most uh, gorgeous voice and will just spontaneously burst into, burst into song around the, around the house. He also likes whistling. You can basically always tell where Theodore is because he's always whistling. What should a parent like me do to sustain his love of singing? I think definitely joining a choir. I can probably give you some advice later. Yep, he's in, he's <laughs> in, he's in his go. school choir. Is yes. there anything else that I can uh, that that I can or should be doing? Um, I think singing is great, and singing is a wonderful thing for young people because it's not one of those things that you need to practice every day. And sometimes practicing an instrument, it's hard. It's physically difficult, um, and you might not be physically ready to do it, but 
if children love singing or even if they don't know that they love singing mm. yet. And I find that a lot, you know, for instance, when we go and find children for the Indigenous Choir, they've never even considered it. And actually, they're really good at it. And they don't necessarily know that they enjoy it. And then there are the ones like clearly Theodore, who is born singing. Um, but a choir is a great way to do that. Mm, mm. I want to ask you a bit about leadership, about, about how you manage to sustain the network of paid staff and volunteers you ha have around you. What, do, are there particular techniques you consciously use as a, as a leader to, uh, to have those people thinking of themselves as a team and to maintain the sort of intellectual nourish nourishment that they need? I think over the 28 years that I've been doing it, it's, um, I think I've been extremely fortunate for the people who have um, sort of been in the circle that I've, that I've worked in. And I have seen it change. There's been, there's been more difficult moments and it's in those moments that you reflect and think, what is it that I'm not quite doing right? How am I not bringing them on board? Um, and sometimes it's just personalities and sometimes it's something you need to move through to realise how, how it works. We, I have to say we've got a golden age at the moment. Uh, I've just got the most incredible team in Gondwana. They're all so dedicated and they love it. And so they're just fantastic to work with and there's enormous amounts of laughter. I think laughter is really, really important. Yes. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's honesty and um, fairness and recognition I think recognising all the great ideas that they all come up with and that everybody's ideas go to, to form what we're doing. Mm. Um, it's that we concentrate and we try so hard all the time to concentrate on doing the best thing, not by just groups of children, but by every child as an individual. And it's um, the children keep us on track, I think. It's what they need and how we can keep offering them more and extending them more and so they can keep discovering things together. And I think we're all headed in that direction is, you know, what can we offer the kids and, and what will they offer us back in return, which is ever greater richness, I think. Um, so I don't know, does that answer the question? In part? Yeah, it does. And I was thinking as you were talking that there's this incredibly strong sense of egalitarianism that seems to run mm. through so much of what you're saying, mm. both in the performance side but also in the leadership side. Mm. And even within the choirs, I'll say to the children in the choir that it's about mutual respect and that we're, we're all in this together and we can all make mistakes. And they are, they are quite welcome, in fact, invited to correct me if they think I'm making a mistake. And sometimes I might well have made a mistake, and I'm happy to admit that because we're all working for the same thing and it's, it's not catching me out in any way. Mm. And sometimes, actually, they might have misinterpreted what's written on the page, and that's okay too if they've said something and, you know, they might have picked me up or they've picked somebody else up in the choir for doing something... And that's, I hope, goes through the entire organisation, that we're all open enough to be able to comment on each other's work and it's never about one-upmanship. Yes. It's always about working towards a common, a common thing and it goes all the way down to the children yeah. um, and all the way through our incredible volunteers. Mm. Yeah. 
And what about yourself? I mean, presumably, when you take breaks, then they're completely surrounded by music. You're uh, you're immersing yourself in music and your play and your rest as you do in your work. I I have to say that these days, not so much. I like to escape from music. I the things I love best. I think I was thinking because we had that conversation earlier. But I was thinking the things, the two things I love best are photography, and I have a couple of very nice cameras, and I could do that non-stop for six months and I also like to you know not very skillfully work with pastels and and I can get completely lost in those things. Wow so it's a it's an entirely different bit of your creative brain that you're mm. turning on when you're resting. Yes but resting and I, the, what, the reason I didn't think of it before is because actually photography if you look at our materials for Gondwana Choirs, I've taken two-thirds of the photographs, which is why I don't appear in them. <laughs> <laughs> it, when you're not taking photos of your choirs, what do you ta- take photos of? Uh, landscape. Right. Landscape. And, um, you know, for instance, we're going on tour next year and incredibly lucky because the tour is finishing in Iceland. And then I've got to go to a symposium several days later, so I'm going to spend some days in Iceland. And to me, I might be totally wrong, but that's photographer's heaven is yes. Iceland. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of looking after yourself, you also had uh, a cancer scare some years mm. some years back. How's that shaped the way in which you live your life now? I spent a year having treatment for cancer and. It was a really interesting time. Just as I was, just before I was diagnosed, I was about to conduct the opening ceremony of the Melbourne Commonwealth Games, and um, you know I saw the surgeon and I said, "Well, if I was your sister, you know, would you recommend that I still conduct the opening of the Commonwealth Games?" He said, "Definitely, but you've got to come back the next day, and that's when the surgery will be." And then the night before, because on that ceremony I was working with Michael Lunig. And he called me the night before and he said, Lynn, don't fight it, just deal with it. And it was the most incredible, it sounds incredibly simple, but it was the best advice, especially the don't fight it business. And I've um, ever since thought that people deal with things like cancer and all sorts of difficulties and everybody's got to be allowed to do it in their own way. And whatever that way is, is absolutely the right way to do it. Because, um, you know, I don't know if anybody else has been in those situations, but everybody is full of advice. And actually, the best advice just comes from what you want to do. Mm. Um, and in my future life, it's just made me appreciate how fabulous the people around me are, I think. And uh, I think it just puts a slightly different perspective on things, but it's, you know, it ha- doesn't define who one is. It just, um, it's one of those things that you, you deal with and then you, you move on and it, and it informs your life in, a, in some way. Mm. So to conclude, let me ask you, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I'd say never to let go of that absolute ideal, idealistic vision of that anything is achievable in life, which is what I thought back then. I, and uh, I think I would, uh, I'd say, don't let go of that for the rest of your life. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, back then, I used to believe that women 
would have the opportunity to do anything and that they just had to try hard and anything would be possible. And I think now, especially as I reach, you know, the time in my life that I'm at now, I do realise that um, that's not necessarily the case and that there are still, unfortunately, the same barriers to women now as there were then, the barriers that I couldn't actually see. Do you see that changing for your daughter or for subsequent generations? Um, I hope so, but you look at what's just happened in America and you think, I don't know, it's been, I'm not sure that it's actually changed all that much. I think back when I was, you know, I remember being on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian as winning a conducting competition as a young woman and people saying, isn't this amazing? And, you know, not much has happened since then, actually, that's really too much progress, I don't think. Mm. When are you most happy? Oh, surrounded by young people who are enjoying life so much and uh, making great music and, um, and then at other times, you know, with family and, and friends. I, I don't know, I, I feel happiness so often that I can't really put it into a box. That's right. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I'm not sure I can answer that question, sadly. I think just get up every day and think, wow, what do I get to do today? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, Yes, chocolate and uh, French champagne. And finally, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think definitely working with young people because they keep you extremely honest. Um, They don't let you get away with anything which is not absolutely direct and true. And, you know, yes, it's about being close to reality and the truth, which only children can keep reminding you of. Lynn Williams, thanks very much for taking the time to speak today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, can I ask you a favour? Would you mind putting something on Facebook to tell your friends? Next week, we'll be back again with another extraordinary guest talking about happiness, health and living an ethical life.